Media Masters with Paul Blanchard. Welcome to Media Masters, a series of one-to-one interviews with people at the top of the media game. Today I'm joined by the film PR pro Lawrence Atkinson. Head of one of the biggest entertainment PR companies in the world, Lawrence has been responsible for generating the buzz around many of the movie industry's biggest blockbusters, including The King's Speech, 12 Years a Slave, The Dark Knight, Casino Royale and Rush, to name a few. A Hollywood insider and a regular on the film festival circuit, Lawrence joined DDA PR, where he's now chief executive, after a long career in the film industry working as a publicist, initially for communications agency Premier and then Walt Disney Company's Buena Vista. A member of BAFTA, he knows how the film industry works and, crucially, how to make it work for him. Lawrence, thank you for joining me. My pleasure. I want to be a Hollywood type like you. How the (laughs) hell does someone get into that? I want to be a fellow of BAFTA. Oh, 20 years in this business this year, in fact. Um, I Start at the beginning. The very beginning. Um, I knew I wanted to work in film or TV. I just didn't quite know what I wanted to do. It's not something your your school careers advisor gives you. as It's an option, you know, doctor, lawyer, you know, librarian. PR in the film world is not something that comes up on, on your various uh, charts as a, as a schoolmaster. So I just kind of fished my way through it. I volunteered at a film festival in Edinburgh where I, where I studied. I knew I didn't want to work uh, behind the camera. I didn't want to be on camera. So I'm not a writer, a director, a producer, actor. So I, I, I just didn't know what else like, you could do in the film industry. I mean, they're the standard things. I'm the Hollywood star. I'm the Hollywood movie director. I'm the writer, the tortured writer. But you um, were attracted to the industry then. The industry. I knew I wanted it. to work on it. Yeah, it's, since a kid, I you know, went to see Star Wars as a, as a young boy, Indiana Jones, Jaws. I mean, they literally were you know, sort of seminal films for me. And I always knew I wanted to do something in that world. Uh, and I just didn't know what, because you don't know at the time, particularly back then, you, didn't, you weren't given a set of options. Now you can do courses and studies and diplomas and things like that. So um, uh, I volunteered. I, I was uh, an intern during my, my uh, college at a, a theatre in Edinburgh called the Lyceum. And one of the, the, the board of trustees there was called Ginny Atkinson, and we share a surname. So I... I went up to a, a theatre do one night. and That said, was the hook, was it? Was we share hook. a surname. Yeah, she was on also on the board for the Edinburgh Film Festival. So I said, we share a surname. I love movies. Can I come and work for the Edinburgh Film Festival? And she said, come and see me Monday. So I went, Julie, over to the, to the Film Festival HQ. Edinburgh's a big festival town, as you know, in, in general. Theatre, dance, music, film, everything is there, television. So I went and see them, and they said, well, we have no pay positions, but if you'd like to be an intern or a volunteer for us, we have a lot of volunteer work. The festival's coming up. Um, so they threw me in the press office. So I was the uh, a, a volunteer press officer for the Edinburgh International Film Festival in 1995. With no experience. With no experience and, uh, whatsoever. But buckets um, of enthusiasm. And I feel 20 years later I'm still in the press office doing pretty much exactly the same <laughs> I thing. Feel like, I also to, feel like I've learned slightly, anything. <laughs> no, nothing. Still do the same stuff. Yeah. Still getting stuff in the papers, out of the papers, whatever. Yeah. But it's the same sort of process. Life. I just loved it. I felt I was dealing with... On the one hand, the media, I got to speak to people from Big Breakfast, as it was back then, TVAM, some of the shows that don't even exist anymore. Uh, at the same time, getting calls from, from directors or producers whose films were selected for the festival and they didn't know what to do when they got there. And I, I love this kind of interface between the creative world and the outside world. I thought, well, there's got to be a job in this somewhere. So I just stuck around the film festival. They just, I said, don't pay me. I'll work in a bar at night. But I just want to learn and learn and learn. And I, and I did. They paid me a little bit of money the next year when the festival came around again. Uh, but in that time, I started building up my, my contacts book, which is kind of what you do in these things. You know, I'm It's all about networking. Networking, networking. I'd met a really great guy. He's who, and we're still friends today. I've got Peter Dunn, who was at Warner Brothers at the time. Uh, one of the guys at the festival had got a job at Disney. 
And actually, it was her. She was, she had called me the second year round and said, "There's a job going at the Walt Disney Company. It had a, an arm called Buena Vista International. Um, the reason being that um, at the time, the Walt Disney Company owned a series of labels. Uh, Miramax, for example, was was one of the. Uh, and so, under you can't have a Miramax like Pulp Fiction released by the Walt Disney Company. The logos don't you know it doesn't work. You don't have you know any number of Hollywood stars and in Tarantino films swearing and that lovely little Mickey Mouse as things comes up. So they they distance them by having a different label for the for the genre stuff and uh yeah so i, I said you know i was given a, a phone call get your fax your cv down to uh to me in london and i'll get this under the marketing director's desk and uh and you know i also we'll going way back on these podcasts when when faxing is mentioned yeah so i uh, yeah I, I just typed up my cv um uh faxed it down and then i had to go to london and was, was interviewed by the then marketing director of, of buena vista uk who was basically just having a shouting match with his wife on the phone over the cost of a bin she just bought, turned to me, asked me my favourite film, and that was pretty much the end of my interview. What was your answer? Uh, I think I said Indiana Jones or Jaws or some, one of those sort of classic. That's good films. And then, and then suddenly backtracked and thought, uh, something of Citizen Kane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got that good yeah. highbrow. Uh, and then followed shortly after that by an interview, somebody flew up from Disney, who's going to be my direct report. And she flew up looking like Cruella de Vil, because she kind of looks like Cruella de Vil. And she'd just been working on 101 Dalmatians, the live action version with, with Glenn Close. So a sort of younger Glenn Close with all the hair and the leopard print flew up to Scotland, uh, met me for a coffee, asked me some slightly more interesting questions, actually, than just what my favorite film was, and then, and then flew down again. And then the head of Buena Vista at the time, who went on to become the head of Miramax after the wine scenes moved on, uh, Daniel Vatsek, uh, I was then given his number, his secretary called me and said, please, could you call Daniel? Um, and I called Daniel and he picked up the phone. And he said, who's this? And I said, my name's Lawrence Atkinson. And he said, what do you want? I said, I was told to call you. And he said, what about? I said, uh, I think it's about a job. He said, what job? And he went on oh, this, this thing. He clearly yeah. absolutely no idea who I was until about five minutes into the conversation when he was just about to go, I'm hanging out. Oh, yes, I remember that. Offered me literally a paltry sum of money, which I just accepted there and then and said, oh, can you start next Monday? which point I have to go, yes, absolutely, yeah, not, not a problem at all. I'll be in the office on Monday morning figuring out I've just literally got to up sticks with my stuff and my life from Edinburgh and head to London, find somewhere to live and start this new job on, on a Monday. And that was September 96. What happened next? Yeah, so the, then, yeah, so the Walt Disney Company, fantastic time, I have to say, the sort of mid to late 90s to be in the kind of film business. I mean, it still is now, obviously, but back then there was huge budgets, so they still are now, but they were spent in a different kind of way back then. We were working on, through this particular company, some of the most incredible films of the, of the period. Blockbusters, which sort of still stand the test of time as blockbusters. Armageddon, Pearl Harbor, Con Air, The Rock. Through to what, when Miramax, which was the company that Harvey and Bob Weinstein, I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, set up uh, based on the, the name of their parents, Miriam and Max. Uh, and, it was, and they were just doing the best in independent cinema. They essentially invented high-end uh, independent cinema, not just for the art house crowd, but for people like mainstream, like mainstream audiences to go and see high quality drama. So the films were, you know, uh, The English Patient, Nine Oscars, uh, um, The Wings of a Dove. Uh, um, and then they, they spun off with a, a genre label and they did the Scream trilogy, which turned the horror movie on its head uh, and reinvented, you know, what is essentially now the, the blueprint for all those kind of teen horror films that you, that you see on a regular basis. Uh, and they had the Tarantino deal, so they were doing Pulp Fiction and, and Jackie Brown. And so we had, it was incredible. And sidebar, Pixar, um, who Disney had invested heavily in, were just changing the mold with CGI animation. So we were seeing Toy Story and Toy Story 2 and Bugs Life and things like that. Which and you were working changing. on all of those films. Yeah, and, and as a sort of publicist for, for that company, you got to work across the slate. They didn't divide it up. 
you divide it up in terms of your workload. So, you know, you, and uh, I guess where you were strongest. But yeah, we got to work on almost everything. I think I flew to Hawaii three or four times during the course of the Pearl Harbor promotional campaign. We, you know, we did an enormous... Um, nice work if you can get it. It's, it's, it's very good work if you can get it. Having said that, to be absolutely honest, I mean, they, we, we flew 200 of the world's top journalists to an aircraft carrier in Pearl Harbor to do our press junket on the aircraft carrier deck. Uh, and the film hadn't gone down as well as everybody had hoped. So it was, you know, we had 200 journalists writing not the best reviews on the laptops we'd given them as gifts <laughs> from the Halakalani or whatever hotel that everybody was staying at a great, a great expense, while the film director and all the actors knew that this was going on. So it was actually a brilliant event. I mean, they, for us international people, they sort of felt like they rebombed Pearl Harbor with fireworks, but there was veterans there. It was an extraordinary event. We shot a documentary with... Um, uh, for Channel 4, which is why I went back and forward. So we did a, like a companion piece. So we took a great crew. Um, I think it might have been Planet 24. I mean, one of the big production crews with us. We went out. We shot pieces with veterans. We did helicopter rides. So, we, you know, we were getting very creative with, with PR, as it were. It wasn't just straight interviews with, with Ben Affleck. We were doing all sorts of other things on the side. So a great, great time to be in London and, and, and to be at the Walt Disney Company. It hadn't had a London office for many years prior to that. They subbed out their work to other companies. So they'd set up one of us international in London, maybe just a couple of years before I joined. Uh, so it was just finding its feet and it just hit this purple patch. And the content, the movies were phenomenal. Uh, they came with great budgets, great creativity. Um, we were smashing the mold as, as a company um, on a daily basis with what we were doing with the films. And you know, digital was really in its infancy back then. So it was very traditional PR tactics that were getting used and time, you know, time again and uh, you know, we got to travel the world with a bunch of movie stars, um, which is always a fun thing to do and has its challenges, as you'd imagine. But we, yeah, it, I think I was there for six or seven years in the end. And actually during that that period, um, they sent me out to the studio. So I got to live in L.A. for a while, which is where I got my Hollywood taste. Because um, you, normally you get sent to L.A. or New York for, you know, a press trip. So you take... Journalists over to interview Bruce Willis for the sixth sense. But there's not enough time to live the life. Uh, you know, you don't scratch the surface. You you see your hotel, the the cinema for the premiere or the press screening, back to the hotel, all the journalists are there. You set up all the interviews. They talk to Bruce Willis. They talk to whoever. Uh, and then everybody goes home. And the whole period is, the whole process is two or three days at a time. And uh, so I got sent there for a substantial period of time. Uh, you know, they put me up in the housing near the studio. I have, I was on the lot. You know, Disney has... Um, uh, it's you know famously next to Warner Brothers in in Burbank, where the big Hollywood studios have, have quite a few have got their bases with the water tanks and all that stuff. The the main Disney building is is um, a brick red building held up by seven dwarfs, genuinely held up by seven dwarfs. Amazing. There's a uh, the animation offices are in a hat, so there's a giant magician's hat as you would see in Fantasia, which has a door, and you go in it and you talk about the animation slate coming up. I mean, it's really it's nut stuff, but it's Hollywood, you know, it's, it's Hollywood, all make believe. Yeah. So why not have your animation office in an animated hat? I mean, that's that yeah, just goes... Well, why not? Okay, yes, in Soho it might seem a little odd, but in Hollywood, no issues there. So yeah, so I kind of got my bug for um, uh, bug for LA back then. And uh, and when I had to come back to London, I think I was a bit... felt like I'd gone back a little bit, you know? So it wasn't like stepping back in time, but I felt I tasted something else in the world. So Lawrence, tell us about how the mechanics work. This is your first taste of doing kind of mainstream Hollywood PR for Disney. And and what was Hollywood life actually like? It wasn't as I expected, to be honest. Um, in my, you know, my experiences of, of, of LA and, and Hollywood were very short with these short press trips that we made. So getting to get, spend a bit of a substantial amount of time there uh, in one block, uh, you kind of get to see, you, you get below the surface. You're not just having a lunch and a dinner and a cinema experience. You, know, you, you get to find out where, where the real people live. 
what they do at their weekends. But actually, it is one, essentially a one industry town. No matter what anybody says, everything feeds off the entertainment business. The lawyers feed off the film and TV and music business. The doctors feed off the film and TV and music business. Everybody's in the film and TV and music business in some capacity. So it's a bit like a sort of Sheffield was a, a sort of you know steel town or something. It has the same sort of idea. Everybody is so sophisticated about the industry. Any waiter you ask will tell you how film financing work, works. They are. It's a town that knows the, the diction of, of, of the film world and the TV world. You can literally ask anybody in the street and they will know how to market a film or have an opinion on how to market a film in a way more sophisticated way than, than we do in the UK. And is everyone um, there kind of, you know, as you mentioned, the waiters, is everyone kind of ferociously ambitious? They either want to be a director or a producer or a Hollywood star. Is everyone there on a mission? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, if you are vaguely talented and often attractive, you find your way there for acting. You know, that's that's what you do. Um, if you want to be in the film or TV or in the business in general, it's the place you make your fame and fortune. That's where the decisions are made. That's where the job opportunities exist. You know, you don't find them in, in, in Michigan or, or, or Washington. That's where politics lies. Uh, you, know, you find them in Hollywood. To a certain extent, New York, there is a sort of New York film movement, Miramax, the Weinstein Company, Leaker Street, uh, Film Nation, and a bunch of companies who are, who are housed in that kind of Tribeca, Soho area of, of New York. But to be frank, you know, the power base is really Hollywood. The studios are based there. The big TV networks are based there. That is where everybody does their business. And actually, as a, as a town, it's sort of divided into areas, almost to dress code, never mind geographically. You know, you have down by the beach you know, in Santa Monica, you have the creatives. You have a lot of uh, independent production companies. You have a lot of independent producers. You have, obviously, act, the acting community. And they quite like the flip-flops, T-shirt, kind of beach style of, of doing business. A lot of the creative agencies or creative production companies are based down there, like Vice and Pulse and some of those names you might have heard of. Uh, you move back uh, into, into town, as it were, a little bit, and you hit sort of Beverly Hills and, and Century City. That's very buttoned down. That's the agents. That's the managers. That's the real power base. You know, that's where the big agencies like the William Morris Agency, you know, w, uh, CAA, you know, ICM, Paradigm, UTA, all these sort of three-letter initials uh, who essentially control Hollywood. They package deals. They represent the actors. They represent the writers. They represent the money. They represent the directors. And they put all of those things together and a, and a, and a film or a TV show is, is born. And, and they dress like that. You know, it's like a scene out of Entourage. It's a lot of guys in expensive suits with incredibly white teeth and fabulous hair um, doing major, major deals. And you have some of the big Hollywood studios there as well, like 20th Century Fox and, and Sony are quite close to that area too. That sounds like the best area so far. I'd prefer to live there. If I'm <laughs> it is, but then you know, then you go over the hill, you know, past the Hollywood sign uh, and down the and down the back of the of the uh, the valley, and that's where that's where the studios are. You know, you find Universal back there, a lot next to their theme park, and you have the Walt Disney Company, and all its various constituents, uh, and you have one of the most famous ones, Warner Brothers, is down there as well. So that's a whole other community. So you have these three very distinct areas of town, which all serve slightly different bits of the entertainment business all somehow linked by a red thread or, you know, through a set of roads, really. Um, but, uh, but yeah, they're all very different, but all part of exactly the same industry. And is it as cutthroat and as competitive and backstabbing as, you know, some, some kind of fictionalised accounts of Hollywood have said? I mean, or, or is it still, you know, you, people can be quite friendly and you can build friendships up there? A uh, combination of the two things. Uh, you have a lot of meetings there. Uh, people are very, very keen to network and take meetings, um, see what you can do for them, see what they can do for you, see if something great can come out of that. So you will always get a meeting. Everybody will be very, very excited about everything that happens at that meeting. Uh, and the key is how you how you get follow-up. I mean, I would say 99% of the meetings result in absolutely nothing. Getting hold of people afterwards, it's a, death, you know, a dead zone after a meeting has happened. 
So a lot of people have meetings and a lot of stuff goes on behind the scenes. And I think it is quite cutthroat. You know, there is a there is a race at the top, very entrepreneurial. So I guess in the slightly more independent side of it, so you have the studios like Disney, Warner Brothers, Fox, Universal, uh, Sony and, and They've Paramount. They've got the but they're less agile, I would imagine. Yeah, so they're big, you know, behemoth-style companies um, with, with all the, you know, mired in the kind of internal studio politics, like any big company is. Uh, and it's who you CC and who you don't CC and who's meeting with who and where they're meeting. And that's just like any politics. other business then as well. Like any other business. It's a business. And then you have that slightly more independent sector who are financing, you know, the kind of high end. When I say independent, that could be a hundred million dollar movie. It could still be classed as independent. It's made outside of the, the studio system. And a lot of guys in, uh, you know, the, the people who operate in that system, they want to run their own companies. You know, so there is a, you know, you work your way up through somebody else's company. And as soon as you can get out and start your own place, then you'll start your own business. The really ambitious guys. So you see a lot of people starting these small businesses. They'll have great success for a handful of years. Then they might consolidate with another business and a new one will be formed. So Hollywood is forever these kind of, it's like a, an ever evolving animal that just keeps adding parts, taking parts off. And it is ambitious. Like anyway, it's, it's you know, you move there for your for your business. And tell us just to go back to the first period of your career as it were what did you learn about the mechanics of film promotion then how does that work and also name drop a few people what was the first a-lister that you ever had a kind of meaningful interaction with oh gosh i think there's a film called the horse whisperer with robert redford who's been an idol of mine i've you know, I've been lucky enough to work or fantastic met, actor yeah many of the, the people i i, I did think you see are, all is lost i absolutely all is lost. i worked film. on all is lost yeah right absolutely. well you can tell us about that later yeah, yeah. and um i think and he only says one word in the entire he film does, doesn't he yeah, yeah. brilliant brilliant screams and, and that's the end and drowns we can't say the word he uses though as <laughs> itunes or banners exactly and uh yeah so so robert redford um was coming in for a film called the horse whisperer um really really nice um piece and uh, and his daughter in the film, or the young girl in the film, is played by a very, very young Scarlett Johansson, which Correct. not many people can actually remember, um, way before she was Scarlett Johansson that we know now. And I remember thinking, you know, there's going to be a lot of baggage that comes with this guy. He's a major Hollywood star, you know, top of his game. And he just turned up, him, um, somebody from Disney who he liked, not a publicist even, somebody whose job it was to go to his house and show him posters for him to sign off on. He liked her, so he's like, oh, well, come to this trip, I'm going to go around Europe. And um, so he turned up, stayed in a pretty low-key hotel, nothing flash penthousey. Him, pair of boots, leather, battered leather bag, sat down. Um, I did my thing, wait outside the door, and I get this yell, "Are you going to come in or what?" I was like, uh, "Sure." And he's just sitting there, feet up on the sofa. Right, we're going to. What's happening? And just talk me through it. And within about five minutes, he was telling me stories of Butch Cassidy, some of my literally all-time favorite films. That's and I thought, amazing. this this guy's phenomenal. And uh, yeah, so that was you know. Very early on. starstruck? A little bit with that one. A little bit. Um, I'd be just massively because he starstruck. Is a, he's Robert he Redford. Is a, yeah, he's Robert Redford. But, you know, over that period, we were doing films with Sean Connery and Nicolas Cage and, you know, uh, John Cusack and, and uh, Bruce Willis, regular films with Bruce Willis. Uh, we did Sixth Sense before anybody knew about the the clever ending. You know, I, I, none of us knew what the film was even about until we'd saw it. I'm a closet um, fan of M. Night Shyamalan, actually. I think he's, I think he's good. But it seems to be the the trendy thing to say that he's not. <laughs> but anyway, uh, yeah, yeah. Actors go, you know, it's interesting. I mean, an actor has a, a body of work um, and is judged by their body of work. But you know, actors, movie stars, their their stars fade. It's very hard to maintain a presence as somebody that people of all ages will still pay their ten bucks to go and see at the cinema. So presumably, though, you've mm. got the, the duality of a, of an actor who's at the top of his or her game because not mm. only have they got to be have that screen worthiness. 
but then they don't want to build up enemies. They've got to be personable and professional. And as, as you've said, I imagine all of the A-listers that you work with have actually been quite easy to work with from a personality point of view. Is that right? Not necessarily. <laughs> all right, OK. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, th- I think on the whole, people who have enjoyed uh, a career at the top of their game tend to have a pretty established um, understanding of the business. They often start at a time when the world was different than it is now. It's not. It wasn't quite so visible as the world is now. There wasn't so much media that um, that is easily accessible to, to everybody. So there's a lot of demands. There's a lot of you know. There's a lot of silly stuff that goes on behind the scenes of, of getting people, especially moving people around the world. I did a big film with Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, called The End of Days, which was a sort of turn of the century um, post-apocalyptic. The devil is returning in the form of Gabriel Byrne film. And it's the first time I'd worked with with, with Schwarzenegger, and you know, there's you know, you, he's a guy who made his living out of you know being an actor, but also having this incredible body and this health regime. So, of course, you've got to set up the the, the trip, the room, in the way that he needs to maintain his physique. You know, a lot of actors are training for their next roles. He just trains it all the time, so you have to raise specific foods and cereals and drinks and all sorts of other stuff. Uh, and it, you know, it took me by surprise at first when just to see this sort of list of stuff that we have to provide, but then. That's just what he needs. I mean, that's what that actor needed to maintain his physical shape to allow him to do these kind of macho uh, action roles. You know, looking back, it felt weird at the time, but now it just feels perfectly normal. And, you know, there's people like Dustin Hoffman and others and Harrison Ford who genuinely think are really um, just know what they need, know what they want, and it's, it's, they're pretty good to work with for that reason. So how do they view the relationship with you as a publicist, as it were? You were kind of necessary evil. Do they enjoy the acting but then, you know, have to kind of fulfil their contractual obligations <laughs> to promote it around the world? Or do they kind of see that as part of the, the, the process of the fr- film overall and they just want to get on with it? It is part of the process. You know, some of it's contractual um, to a certain extent. You can't make people do interviews, but you can certainly contract them to you know, providing opportunities for the media to engage with the film. It's part of the job. You know, you shoot a great film, you take a great paycheck for it. You want it to be successful worldwide. You want your star to be successful worldwide. Um, So it kind of comes with the process. A lot of people enjoy it. They get to travel around the world in private jets, staying in five-star hotels, meeting fun and interesting people all over the world. China, That are interested and engaged with what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, and actually, you know, liking what they've done. It's hard if you've got a film that, you know, hasn't possibly turned out as well as everybody had hoped. So if you're touring for that film, you say you're doing six or seven countries. Because uh, if you think about it, every, you know, every time you turn on the TV and you see a, uh, an actor on Graham Norton show or the Jonathan Ross show or wherever it happens to be, there's a chance that that actor's trip is part of a longer tour. Mm. And that same actor in two days' time will be doing the same thing in Paris and talking on a big French uh, chat show, then going into Germany, doing the same thing in Germany, going into you know, uh, Italy, doing the same thing in Italy. So the tour bounces around. Like you would tour a rock band, you know, like if you look at the Rolling Stones or any successful rock band, a group moves around from country to country for all the dates that they've booked. And the local people on the ground take care of them when they're in, ter- in territory, as the phrase goes. Uh, um, and then the people on the tour are the people who are the constants, you know. So for when we're working, for example, on the international aspect of the film, we are part of that, on that, that group that travels from country to country. We just... Uh, did a film last year uh, with Russell Crowe called The Water Diviner, which he directed as well as starred in. So essentially an independent film. He'd, you know, he'd find, raised the finances independently and gone through the independent circuit. And we took him to 10, 12 countries. Um, and he really liked a guy in our office who was, who, who was assigned to his, his, um, his film. And, we, yeah, and it, was, it was a fantastic experience working. Again, all the way through, we were the constant for the whole film. And we just went to different countries where... You know, our local team on the ground from whoever had acquired the rights would do all of our local stuff, booking cars and restaurants and the premiere and the chat shows. and things like that. So we were just taking Russell Crowe from country to country to country and doing a similar sort of thing everywhere. 
And to carry on your analogy of the kind of band on tour, yeah. as it were, obviously the band can rehearse their songs, they've got a set list, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. How much do you prep the, the actor for their appearances? Do they have a kind of set of anecdotes that they're going to share in Paris, in London or mm-hmm. whatever, you know, to say the director was great, this is how I met him, this is how, you know, blah, blah, blah. How does that work? Yeah, there's usually right at the outset, actually. Um, before the first sort of interviews happen, then there, there'll be a briefing of some description. Often that's done. An actor will, can have an agent, a manager, a personal publicist, uh, and then we tend to work for the films or the TV shows themselves. So we will we'll not necessarily with Russell Crowe all year round. We're just working with him over the, the period of one particular project we're working on. And he's and he do all the normal things you would do with with, with any P, you know PR job. You sit at the beginning, look at what you got to work with. It's a film, a five star masterpiece like The English Patient or The King's Speech. You are sitting pretty, and you've got the film is going to do the talking for you. Uh, is it a little bit disappointing? And we all know that, so we have to mitigate for that and 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 come up with other things. Uh, the American PR circuit, chat show circuit, is very well established. Leno, Letterman, all the old old guys are now Corden and everybody else. So they're very used to having a set of anecdotes. And any major chat show comes with a re- with a um, a research chat. So if you're on a show here, the producer or the um, researcher will set a time for a call, uh, and the call will happen with the actor and go through anecdotes. The researcher will have done uh, a bunch of online research, some of which will be accurate, some of which won't. Parameters will be set. Are you happy to talk about your family? Are you happy to talk about this? This is the clip you want to show for the film. Are you happy with that? So you just kind of run through a bunch of stuff. So Graham Norton at one point will know that he can't ask Tom Cruise about X, Y, and Z. Yeah, yeah. Now, whether they stick to that or not is really a different matter, and obviously these shows are edited. But yeah, there is a, it's a two-way street. Yeah, because you wouldn't want to sour the, sour the tone of, of it. If you've if you, if you, if you, if you got Tom Cruise on your, on the Graham Norton show, you want it to be a pleasant, fun, upbeat, fun yeah. chat. You're not going to ask him about various things it's in true. his closet. And all but then if you take the risk of putting somebody, uh, an actor or a director on, on a more political show, you know, the Channel 4 News show is famous for, you know, having various run-ins with Robert Downey Jr. And yeah, Christian Goomer, they asked him about exactly. yeah, Because it's a new show and you know going in. So if you're putting a guest on an entertainment show then it's going to be entertaining. It should be funny. It's quippy. It's anecdotal. There will be potentially a fun thing or a prank. I mean, look at what's happening in the US now, which I think is phenomenal with James Corden doing his um, his carpool karaoke uh, and Fallon. And they're doing these incredible pieces of content now, really engaging actors in a different way that ever, that never existed. And the UK is starting to catch up with that. If you put an actor on a major, you know, on the Andrew Marr show on, you know, on, on the BBC, there's going to be a political agenda there. You know, so you don't put you can put Robert Redford on there. He is actively political. You know, he is outspoken and he can hold his own in that conversation. You might not put somebody on there who's just not comfortable or particularly if they don't know the politics from that particular country. And they don't want to go on an Andrew Marr show and be made to look a fool because they don't know that the, you know, the, the EU referendum has just been announced. So, you know, you want to prep them as best as you can, but don't stick them on a politics show if you don't or a news program if you don't want to face the consequences of somebody getting grilled as if, as if it was David Cameron. And what's in your kind of toolkit of methodologies? Because, I mean, as you've, you've mentioned one of them there, which is to, to literally put Arnold Schwarzenegger on the Graham Norton show, so you've mm. got all that, the knowledge of what the, the, the chat show should mm. be, Jonathan Ross, etc., etc. But then, obviously, you've got the red carpet premieres. Mm. You know, what else is in your armoury of things where you think, right, I've got a film to promote, mm. these are the things that I'll do? And, I mean, red carpet at premieres now are huge affairs. Yeah, My awesome. office is in Covent Garden, and <laughs> I often walk through, well, yeah, I try yeah. and get through Leicester, <laughs> Leicester Square yeah. to get the tube home, and often you can't, and I, I'm, I'm amazed at just how huge these events are now. Yeah, I mean, surprising, some, of, some sort of film promotion is very old-fashioned. You know, it, it is having an actor turn up at a red carpet, having an actor show up on a chat show, having an actor show up for a photo call. Because it's about an actor's work. So, I mean, those really old-fashioned PR tactics are still very, very relevant today. 
you know, a, a premiere is a call to action. You know, it's it's just people going to the cinema, essentially, is what a premiere is. But it's, you know, it's built up into an enormous build in Leicester Square or somewhere more exotic. Uh, there's, you know, all the photographers are invited to come down, live news crews. If you're doing Star Wars or you're doing some, you know, Harry, but we were lucky enough to work on almost all of the Harry Potter premieres. Yeah, wow. the very the final premiere of the final Harry Potter was just unbelievably big. They you know they took over Trafalgar Square for fans, and then they had the all the audience had taken over the whole of Leicester Square, four cinemas to house all of these special guests who were invited. It was just a huge celebration, and the coverage was absolutely global. I mean, you had we had a hundred plus television crews from around the world covering that's, that event. That's a lot that's, of logistics to coordinate. But these, are, but it's still ultimately people going to the cinema and a very old fashioned PR tactic. Obviously, things get very sophisticated now with with social and digital. And the good thing with film is is it tends to be quite attractive to the media. It can be like with anything. You look at what you have. Is it a a real life story which we can then you know look you know, engage the media with? This is based on somebody's book or somebody's life story. It's a biography, a biopic. Is it a comedy? Is it a romance? Is it for Valentine's Day? Who's in it? Uh, is it any good? Should we screen it to the press really early and get them on board and get them to build up the hype around it because it's such a good film? Is it absolutely terrible? And let's try not to screen it too much because it's not going to do anybody any good. So you look at all you know, the, 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 the tools are either very traditional ones, which have always worked um, for any kind of product launch, be it cinema or games or anything, um, through to very, very sophisticated and personalized social and digital. You know, There's so many incredible systems now that allow you to interact on social media directly with people getting personalized messages from film stars if they are tweeting about a particular thing. There's a huge amplification at premieres to make them even bigger uh, with social media incentives to be at Leicester Square or wherever the premiere is and tweeting about it in return for various things. Um, you know, every week there's a new tactic, you know, whether that's periscoping live from, you know, which is you know, last year's tactic, really. Uh, there's now new ones where you know, pieces of content can be sent directly to your phone from premieres, which are personalized to you. So you're basically just creating and film. Again, we're very lucky in the film and TV space and that the content is, is, is exciting. There's an appetite for, I mean, look at what's just happened with, with Deadpool, which is a sort of subversive um, superhero film. It's had a very creative marketing campaign, which I'm sure lots of people will take credit for at various points over the next six months. And uh, uh, but it's uh, it's taken what is traditional marketing tactics, turned them on their heads, really engaged fans in a in a, in a way that's never been done before, uh, and used their star uh, Ryan Reynolds in a way that stars don't normally get used. You know, he's actively involved in every aspect. He's guerrilla style. He is really engaged in the process. And you've got a star who's not just trotting out of the red carpet. He's doing so much more to help his film. In a sense, does it make it a little easier that the media is so interested mm. automatically in what you guys are doing as an industry? So, for example, I've got a client, John Mills. He mm. owns a company that makes ironing board covers <laughs> and shower curtains. I couldn't get him on the Graham Norton show, and I'm, I'm a reasonably good PR guy. You've got a kind of innate interest. If, if Arnold Schwarzenegger's got a new film coming out and he's in London, the chances are he's going to get on a reasonably big show. It's very true. We are very, very lucky in the sense that there is an appetite, um, and I can't really deny that. It's one of the. I mean, I love the business, and it is show business, and it, it engages all sectors of the media at some point. You can have a film about gardening, you can have a film about vets, you can have a film about you know, ironing board covers. If it's funny and funny enough, you know, a film called Joy um, with Jennifer Lawrence is you know, basically the the, the the QVC story, well, one of the um, online shopping stories. You know, she does sell cleaning products, so you know you're selling of ironing board covers could have tied in nicely to the release of Joy if you wanted to do some real-life stories. And that's what you look at. Is there a real-life case study that can be tapped into to make use for PR for the film, to get off the film pages, onto the news pages, 
onto the features pages. And is that the onto goal? Mums to kind of move there. beyond? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, news is great. Premieres get you news. You know, you, you get front... I've had more front cover stories over the years than you, you know, most PRs get to have because... Uh, who work in other industries, sorry, because film premieres with fabulous-looking people looking fabulous on red carpets for films which are very popular tend to make the front cover. You will see Eddie Redmayne on the front cover in the, in the lead-up to whichever film, like Theory of Everything last year and, and The Danish Girl for this year. You will see you know, Julia Roberts. You'll see these actresses. And you can't buy those kind of front covers. You know, it's, and you have to work really hard to get a front cover for a for an ironing board cover story. You know, that's a it's just not going to happen so easily. Is there so, a competition between other films though? Because you know, Empire comes out monthly. Mm-hmm. It only has one front cover. It does, unless you uh, get them to do six front covers for the same <laughs> film <laughs> with the characters, which they do. Quite that sounded like, like a feed-in question. Didn't it? <laughs> so tell me why you're great. Um, but, you know, look at Batman versus Superman. They can do a Batman cover and a Superman cover. It's a great news story for Empire. It doesn't cost them an awful lot more money. But if do. you've got if you've got a competing independent film about ironing board covers yeah. you're not going to get a cover I mean in a sense that that's one film that's won that month's cover that's correct you have but 12 the, the, out of 12 or 15 opportunities that they could have chosen 12 opportunities a year sometimes they do a 13th um, to, to get a front cover for Empire so how do you leverage your client's film above kind of above and beyond whether it's any good or not mm. as it were well i mean that's every pr's problem even i have is. that problem where a client has something that's moderately interesting and they think it's very interesting mm. you've got to use a lot of skill to, to kind of big it up it's true you know you maintain very strong relationships with, with those kind of magazines especially the ones that cover your sector like an empire magazine um you know it, it's not a trade but it, it's it's speaking to people who like cinema uh and with the lead times even though they're getting shorter these days you need to be talking about your film six months minimum in advance, if not more. So the good thing with things like the Hollywood studios is they, they greenlight their slates for years to come. So you can say, you know, Disney will know when the next Star Wars is coming out and the one after that and the one after that. So they can be talking to Empire Magazine now about four Empire covers over the next four years for the various Star Wars. And you know that Empire readers love Star Wars, Empire staff love Star Wars, there's a very good chance that all those there will always be a Star Wars cover every year at Empire for the next four years. But what the, happens if the next two Star Wars films are good, but the, the third one coming out four years from now is actually not very good? Do you have a strategy for that where you actually kind of acknowledge internally? You know, I've seen these things where it says <laughs> we've not, uh, we, uh, you know, this film has not been screened for critics, and you think that's always a bad start. It, it is. This film screen late. Um, a lot of the blockbusters are, are not finished that far out from their releases. So you'll have already done your piece for Empire magazine. It's gone to bed long before you can show them anything more than just a bit of footage. We invite them onto the set. So if you have a great movie shooting somewhere, it's very, very sort of tried and tested that you will take a small group of journalists to that set. They have the inside track. They'll speak to all the cast. They'll speak to the crew. They'll speak to the props guy, the stunt director, the, 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 the weapons guy, the martial arts specialist, whatever it happens to be the film that you're shooting costume design um so you're banking serious and we i worked on a film called rush about um that ron howard directed which i thought was a really fantastic film about uh james hunt and nicky lauder the, the formula one uh, drivers from the 70s and we had something like 50 journalists on the set during the course of production which is a, a lot because they're there to make a film they're not there to entertain journalists and um, we had about 50 journalists on the set which meant by the time the film came out there were 50 major from around the world pieces banked and just on hold until the film was coming out. Uh, and well, this is a good behind, thing to have in the bank. 50, you know, I mean, I'm talking serious, serious pieces from serious newspapers, from serious territories. And uh, yeah, and it was a really nice feeling. But we had a very collaborative director who loved, you know, who, uh, we had a great subject matter that people were interested in, a nice cast who were very willing to talk to journalists. 
a lot of actors, and I completely get that because this is their livelihood, are you know, during production they, they go into their character and they don't really want to speak to anybody else. They want to get through, they want to stay focused and talking to journalists can take them out of that. So there's, there's certain films, for example, uh, 12 Years a Slave is, is, is quite a nice one where the set itself is very, very tough. You know, you've got actors, you know, going it's to a tough very, film. very tough emotional scenes. You know, it wasn't it wasn't pretty, and and very very early on in production, um, and we had a, a call with a with the some of the production team, and they basically said, no journalists are visiting the set. It's not a place we want the outside world to visit because it's too, it's too tough. You know, the actors are having an unbelievable emotional journey to go through. Um, you know, some of the sequences are very disturbing. As mm. anybody who saw the final film, and the film is a masterpiece. It you know, won all sorts of things. Um, an exceptionally disturbing and very upsetting. Not something you want to watch a hundred times for fun. It's a really powerful piece. And so the tactics there are not. You don't flood the you know the set with hungover journalists from Empire who just go all right. What's it's you know you don't want that. You want you know you you protect it, and then you you set your strategy about well we have a masterpiece in the in you know in the can now. Um, what are we going to do with it? Where are we going to start its journey? Um, and then you start mapping out things like film festivals, like where you know we want the critics, we want those laurel wreaths you get from a, a major film festival like Cannes or Venice or Toronto or or Berlin. So let's look at what's available to us. Uh, at a time that suits the film's release campaign, and let's talk to those festivals now and say, "Hey, would you? You know, we'd love to show you this film." They're already tracking the film. It's, a, it's you know, it's it's a big piece for, for festival directors. So, you know, we decided to go to um, to Toronto as our as our sort of world premiere. It's very good for the North American market. And then you take the film through you know through European festivals afterwards. I think for King's Speech we did. I don't know, 10 festivals by the time the film came out of various sizes. You know, we started its journey at Telluride, which is this discovery festival where small, you know, small perfectly formed films that you think are going to go all the way get launched, and then Toronto, and then London, and Rome. And we finish off in Berlin in February, four months later, having won prizes left, right, and centre. And it's, it's going all the way to the BAFTAs, all the way to the Oscars. Um, so you just set your strategy based on that. How's the UK film industry doing these days? I mean, we've got something of a renaissance with Pinewood, with Star Wars and the, and the Bond film, some of the films you've worked on. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, the, the studios are packed. Uh, there's a very good tax credit here, um, and the government's been very good at, at supporting that, um, which means that, you know, you, you, you spend a sizable budget in the UK, you get a sizable back in tax, in tax credit, which is very healthy for the industry. It also means companies like Disney, we use a good example there, will book their productions into UK studios for years to come. Because the production money goes further when you have a tax credit. And the practitioners here are really, really strong. So you know you're guaranteed a great crew and great facilities and 25% tax rebate for whatever you spend here. That's a really neat thing. So a film like, you know, The Avengers, which is a sort of American cast, superhero, you know, Marvel film you think would shoot in some Hollywood studio. It doesn't. It shoots in the UK because, it, you know, that's makes more sense financially and have all the, the right kind of equipment here and, 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 and the technicians. So in that sense, it's, it's really vibrant. The independent sector continues to be very hard. Um, you know, raising money, getting certain level of films off the ground um, is, is, is continues to be difficult. You know, it's a gamble for people who put money into films, whether they're going to see a return or not. It, it, it is investment. So that side continues to be hard. And there are game changes like Netflix and Amazon Prime coming into the industry, changing what have been, frankly, quite old-fashioned models, sophisticated though they may be, uh, but they're changing the way that the, the deals are done and things are financed. So it's it's the independent sectors having to battle these giant um, streaming services who have decent money coming in, snapping up crews, snapping up A-list cast, 
uh, changing the way that deals are structured so there's no water flow, there's no back end because they just buy them out from the outset. So, um, so that's, again, still healthy. You still have an industry at least, um, but it's changing the, the world for a lot of people. Channel Four just or Film Four just announced an increase in their funding this year, which is which is terrific, and they've always been great purveyors of uh, of British cinema and invested wisely in, in other places too. BBC Films sort of ha- you know it's it's holding its ten million budget. It's not I think it's been decreased a little bit, but again I think BBC Films has made some incredibly smart decisions on a on a relatively limited budget. Just before we go back to your career, I just want to ask you about diversity. What's your view on the, the uh, how shall I put it, hashtag Oscars so white? <laughs> it's an interesting one. Are um, they doing enough? I mean, Idris Elba, for example, I was reading something on the way here that says he, that they're not doing anywhere near enough. I, I agree with that. I mean, the, to blame a voting community, I think, is, is incorrect. I mean, voters can only vote for what's been made. You know, I'm, a, I'm a lucky enough to be a member of BAFTA. Um, I can only vote for the films that have been made. And if there aren't films that have particular diversity about them, I can't vote for them because they don't exist. So it's more about creating the opportunities for a more diverse um, section of, of society to, to, to be involved in the filmmaking process or TV making process. I mean, the same, you know, whether the Oscars have been whitewashed, um, it's, you could say the same about the sort of gender equality. I mean, there's not enough women working in, in film or positions of, of power that they should be. Uh, that's, that's crazy. That's 50% of the population. Uh, so um, that's where the sea change has to happen. Uh, it can't be just about, I think it's very easy just to paint this year's Oscars as a, as a it's been whitewashed. But if the films weren't there in the first place, the Oscar voting community can't vote for them. There are somewhere around 6,000 Oscar voters, same, same for BAFTA. And those 6,000 people could only vote for what's, what they've been given to see. So I don't think the award show um, is, is to blame. I don't think um, voters, I certainly um, you know, wouldn't want to cast myself as, as whitewashing my, my, my voting for BAFTA this year um, at all. It's only about what I've seen uh, and what I liked in terms of performance and, uh, and film. Um, would I want more, more diversity? Of course, I think everybody wants more diversity and that's, that's the way the world should be moving to. But that requires you know, audience change, uh, big decision-making change right at the highest level, um, where people who actually do sign off and green light films to make some ch- you know, positive changes about the kind of films they're going to make. But ultimately, audiences dictate what gets made. And if you, it's, a, it's a business. If nobody's going to see a particular film, it's very hard for it to, to get made. What are the threats to the industry? I mean, is, is piracy a big threat? Is, is Netflix huge kind of home entertainment systems? Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got the West End cinemas now charging 20 quid a ticket in, in some, some of the big screens. You know, if you're a family of five, you're going to be spending 100 quid. Where, where, where are the threats to the industry coming from? Uh, piracy has always been a threat and, and continues to be a threat. You know, certain markets um, suffer really badly from, from piracy. The, the, the minute a film is out in anywhere in the world, certain markets have it pirated. China suffers horribly. That's almost why there's no DVD market in China, because it's pirated instantly. So a film comes at the cinema, and therefore anybody can then buy it there afterwards. So there isn't a secondary home entertainment or VOD market at all, because you can sort of buy it on the street corner. Russia also suffers heavily from piracy. You know, and, and leaks, you know, there's a very famous case um, recently with uh, The Expendables 3, where the, the film was leaked online and shared on various BitTorrent sites. And, you know... The people who made that movie invested a lot of their own money. And the people who actually bought that film around the world to release in their local countries also invested a lot of money. And it was all legitimate. It's a great business. It's a great, fun proposition as a film. Uh, and it kind of, you know, the, it, it took a lot of money away from the people who had invested it in the first place. And a lot of, um, to the point where it became a, um, a, a general sort of FBI case. You know, it, it is fraud. So the, the producers and the, um, the guys who run that studio 
who made it um, took it to the highest level. They use a, uh, they they lobbied through IFTA. IFTA is a um, actually one of our clients, but IFTA is the uh, Independent Film and Television Alliance, and, and they they govern the independent world, you know, in which this film was 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 made by, or they help shape the independent world and support it. So they lobbied, uh, you know, the, the FBI and, and the various authorities. And it's you know, there's a proper investigation into that film and how it was leaked. And I was about to ask then, is the there's obviously a steward's inquiry. I mean, yeah. what's the motivation for someone to leak it just because they can? Yeah, but because the consequences of it mm-hmm. are so disproportionately vast in terms of the economic loss. Yeah. So, so presumably they, they, they're really good at tracking all the various versions that are out there. I imagine there's digital watermarks. Did they, did they find the guy or gal who, it's who, un- who leaked it? It's undergoing, but yes. I mean, there's a lot of processes now um, about things like leaks. I mean, and that's industrial espionage in general. We all heard the Sony leak last year. The, um, there are companies out there, actually, companies that tend to be in the financial sector that are moving into the entertainment sector because they provide secure systems. Obviously, for the for the reasons that financial um, information is incredibly confidential, so there's learnings that the industry is going through for, for, for that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, think ultimately, you might beat the kind of leakers and the pirates. That's the idea. And um, is, is that having a real effect? Because I, I understand, you know, if you're going to make a film now, Avengers or whatever, you're going to know that you might even factor in the fact that it's likely to be pirated, and therefore you're going to lose say twenty percent. But yeah. is it if it disproportionately affects certain genres more, as you were saying, or certain territories? Is that having a real effect where someone says, right, okay, this is a film that's more likely to be seen in China, therefore we're going to make much less money on it because of the piracy problem there, and therefore we're not going to green light it? Yeah, not that you wouldn't green light it. You would just, you know, when you're running your numbers and your budgeting, you would just say, okay, this is what we think we'll get in China for this. If you even get your film released there, there's very strict uh, softening, but strict uh, regulations about the kinds of films that can be released in China. But if you make Game so, of Thrones, for example, mm-hmm. I read somewhere yeah. that that's the most pirated and the most torrented thing. Yeah. They must factor that in. And at some point, some executive must say, we could be making 800 million here, but we're only making 200 as a direct result of these people torrenting it. It's true. And that's why we're seeing much more things like day and date releases, which is basically where a film property comes out in the same, on the same date, on the same day, everywhere in the world at the same time. So you basically allow those who want to see it on the big screen the opportunity to see it anywhere, and they could be in France and Germany and China, all at the same time, give, give or take. You know, so that really helps that process. That's great for the blockbusters because they can roll out these films very, uh, very widely, very quickly. Um, harder for the independent sector because it's made by getting money from different countries to put into a pot, and that pot then then makes the movie. Um, and then in return, those people who put into the pot get the rights in their country. And things like Netflix is um, it's a game changer because it has upset the apple car you know in the same way that uber has upset taxi drivers um and we're all figuring out you know how how the, how the industry copes with that netflix take things off the table and they allow them to be accessed simultaneously everywhere in the world with a click of a button and um and they pay for that but there's no it removes things like the dvd release the svod release the vod release the television window all the things that would traditionally be part of a the long tail of a, of a film's um financial income the cinema release is often just what sets up the rest of the uh, the tale. Things like Netflix are, are not just in, obviously in original uh, content like TV now. They are in the film space, not just buying library. They are buying, um, you know, they're making original films. Idris Elba's piece of donation is, is a great example. Do filmmakers want their stuff just to be on TV sets? Probably not. So Netflix is figuring out how to release those films theatrically and create those windows and create that aura and buzz of something being seen at your local cinema. They'll work with different independent cinema chains, uh, like Landmark, Netflix works with the Landmark theatre chain in, in the US, and it allows films like Beast of Donation to get a cinema release. It might not be in every single multiplex, but it, it's in enough to kind of get that feeling that a film has had a cinema run. That, that makes it more valuable. 
So two questions left, but the, the first question is, uh, we actually, before we went on the longest uh, segue ever, uh, we were actually talking, going through your <laughs> career and we'd only got to Disney. Oh, yeah. Clearly you were there <laughs> and now you're chief executive of you know DDA. Tell us what happened in the meantime. How did you get there and what's it like to be chief exec? Yeah, well, I, after my Los Angeles experience and I came back to London and I definitely felt like it was time for a, a move. Um, I've always been a bit more entrepreneurial and I was um, approached by a, a great company called Premier who probably one of our big competitors, uh, and uh, to come in and they were being set up at the time. It was it was an amalgamation of a number of smaller companies being squashed together to make one company called Premier. Um, and they asked me if I'd be interested in coming in to run the, the film team, uh, which I was. It was a perfect time for me to move. I'd had my period in LA, back at my old desk in London. My boss at the time probably wasn't going to go anywhere. In fact, she's still here at Disney now. And um, I mean, it made good sense. Why not go now? A uh, new company, new challenge. And I think I learned more about the film business in the first year of working at an agency as opposed to a big studio uh, than I'd done in six or seven years of working at, at Disney. And uh, not that I regret any minute of that, but you learn a different side of the business. And I did three or four years at, at Premier, and we really built the company up into something quite, you know, had an opportunity to hire, built a fantastic team around me. And uh, and I probably was stealing some some substantial bits of business from, from DDA, which is where I am now. And... Um, Dennis Davidson, who was the founder of, of DDA in 1970, was was um, basically planning his his exit at some point. And, and he and I had been introduced, uh, uh, and I was introduced as somebody who might want to take his business over from him should he decide to leave. Uh, and so we kind of did a you know a deal. He's a fantastic man, a bon viveur, a real character in the kind of old, you know old school sense. It don't, doesn't often exist anymore. And we did a you know, deal a deal on a napkin over too many bottles of Chianti and a fabulous. Knightsbridge Italian restaurant. They're the best places to do these deals, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Italian restaurants in Knightsbridge, that's the only place to change your career path, in my opinion. I think all my my future moves will be exactly the same. So what year was this? How many years ago was this? This is 10 years ago, almost to the day. Uh, I joined DDA 2006 uh, in February, actually, and we'd done a deal just before Christmas. And you joined them already, presumably, in quite a senior position. Yeah, uh, executive vice president was my, my title when I joined. Um, and then they, the plan was to, to work together for a couple of years to figure out if we could gel properly, because I didn't know Dennis Davidson particularly well, and then figure out a way to, to hand over, really. So we went through a couple of years. I spent a lot of time in Los Angeles again, because uh, DDA is one of the very few agencies that has both London and, and Los Angeles offices. And we've always enjoyed that kind of um, duality that, that having the two sides of the Atlantic gives us. And uh, and now it's yeah ten years later. I literally just had my decade. And the congratulations, you know, the, thank you. The company's changed enormously. Obviously, the changes that I made um, when I first came in, and then there are changes that you know our senior staff are making now because you have to agencies. You have to refresh. You can't sit still with an agency. You have to move. You know, add new services to your portfolio. You know, we know we just did a deal to handle creative design, which we always used to outsource, and now we have it as essentially an, an internal facility. Uh, the social digital world is changing everything on a daily basis. Some of the traditional stuff still works really well. We still need people who know how to move Tom Cruise around the world because that's a thing you still have to do. You know, social media doesn't suddenly allow Tom Cruise not to travel everywhere. He's still got to go out and do his red carpets no matter. You can just do more stuff with them. So we we constantly try to, to change, and there's a couple of things we'll do this year. Um, but it's, you know, it came with the challenge of running a business to an extent I'd not, not experienced before. Ten years ago, I was, you know, I was not a seasoned CEO by any by any stretch of the imagination, uh, and I'm not to this day either. But you learn a lot of great stuff. You know, you you, you learn the industry that you're in, and you figure you've done 20 years now. You sort of know what you're talking about because you're mm-hmm. still making a living out of it. Last question, then. 
What have been the best moments of your career so far? What have been the best Hollywood stars, the best film projects? What is there a particular day or a memory that <laughs> springs to mind? Come on, tell us, tell us the highlights. Oh, there's so many. I, I, I um, I, you you've know, got three minutes. <laughs> I love. I've done quite a few Tom Cruise films over the years. Is he a good guy to work uh, with? I think he's absolutely amazing. Thank goodness. I don't, I, I don't think amazing. I could survive if I knew he was His not very work nice. ethic that is is second to none. Um, you know, and, and and it just takes you to crazy places and crazy things happen. You know, I've, you know, being flown by Tom Cruise in his own plane on the way to a premiere in another country. It's kind of a cool story to tell. Absolutely. You know, not, there's not many of those ones. Did he uh, do the voiceover? So this is your <laughs> captain, Tom Cruise. Kind of, yeah. You know, <laughs> we're, we're yeah, it comes through. Uh, yeah, and it's taken me to some, you know, to Korea and to, to Brazil where, you know, and extraordinary things happen on these kind of trips where, you know, we were at a premiere in, in Rio and a sort of naked dwarf dressed as... Uh, Maverick from from Top Gun was thrown at us by a. I mean, there's things that happen on these in these tours that you just can't you just can't legislate for. You genuinely can't. You know, they, for example, the the Tom Cruise squirting of the water in the face, uh, very famous at the War of Worlds premiere, was one of our events that happened, and that changed that. the face. It was of a fake way, microphone, wasn't fake it? microphone from a Channel yeah. Four prank show, and it changed the way that red carpets were, uh, you know, had their security and how the media could accredit for these events. And the, the the vetting process was so much more stringent, and a lot of people got kicked off carpets just to not risk that happening again. So that I love, I've generally love working on on the cruise films because they take you to great places. There's always a challenge set um, for each film uh, about the kind of things that you want to do, and uh, everything's got to be bigger and better than the last time. So I love working on that stuff. And how do you keep in touch with Tom? Then is he on your? Do you have him on Snapchat or do you? <laughs> do, is he in in your black book or do, do you just know that you'll bump into him four or five times a year at certain events? How does it work? It's I mean really through his team. I mean he's got a great team around who he's had for a long time. So if I mean often he just he doesn't need our services. He's working with Vic Hollywood Studios who have an infrastructure that that, um, that allows for that. Other times he's made something that's maybe slightly more independent. Therefore um, we sort of swing into gear at that particular point. Yeah, so the, you know his team, his, he's got a year-round personal uh, talent you know, representation who I, I'm very close with. And so if something comes up or she can't travel, she's like, oh, Tom's going to be in town for the Empire Awards. Could you look after him for that evening or whatever? So, and, uh, you know, you like That's those not calls. sure, is it? You I like mean, those uh, many people would leap at that yeah, kind I, of opportunity. Yeah, so you know, always enjoyed. Yeah, but then the same with the up stories. You have some of the horror stories as well. You know, there's, Give uh, us a couple. I had, a, I had five private planes taking off from Berlin to Rome after a big film um, that we were doing called The Tourist and the weather was closing in uh, at Berlin Airport. Snow was coming down. It was a winter tour. And, uh, and I said to my, my pilot, I said to the pilot of the plane that I was in, make sure we're last off because I need to make sure all the actors, it was Brad Pitt and Angela Jolie in one plane and there was Johnny Depp and a bunch of others in another plane. The director had another plane. The financier had a plane. And I had a plane with this, basically anybody the, else. The support was personnel. Yeah. Yeah. And then I saw my plane trundling down, or felt my plane trundling down the runway. And I was like, I think, I think we're moving. Anyway, so we took off. I'm, I'm asking, to the, I'm saying to the pilot, are we, are we last then? Is everybody, is everybody up? Everybody up? I land in Italy about an hour later to about 5,000 messages because the only plane that didn't take off was, of course, Brad Nangis. They're stuck at the airport. Their plane's broken down. The airport is now closed. Nobody's back in Germany to help them out with anything. So, four private planes sitting in, like, in Italy, none of whom had any flying hours left to go back and pick them up. Plus, the airport was shut. 
So it was a very it was, so what was did you not do? Do you put them up in a Premier Travel Inn or yeah. what? <laughs> An airport Hilton. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> with Why a, not? With a free what, breakfast. But what literally no, did had, you do? We had a great German team and, and we, we just re-scrambled the hotel that everybody'd been at. Everything was, you know, that we had to find another plane which we got in from Vienna, which had to be flown in from different pilots who had flying hours left, so that it could be there in the morning to take them back to, to Italy. And bless them, they got there to Italy just in time for the press conference. So Italians were having a little bit of a freak out, as you can imagine. Uh, I was having a massive freak out because I just didn't know how to get two very famous Hollywood stars out of Germany into Italy with no plane, with me sitting with four planes doing absolutely nothing, but no pilots who had any flying hours left. What's next for you? Uh, next for us will be Cannes. The Cannes Film Festival is the annual monster uh, on the Côte d'Azur where 10,000s of Hollywood's finest, the world's finest, come to buy, sell and present their wares. Uh, we take 30 or 40 staff to the festival. We're well known to be probably the most powerful agency there. And um, it's a huge undertaking for us. And the prep started many months ago. So um, that's going to be a big one for us this year. Lawrence, we've had an hour and I feel slightly closer to the glamour and, and the world of Hollywood. So thank you ever so much for your time. I've learned a lot. My pleasure. A Big Things Media Production. Big Things!